Wake up, America. It's Morning Air with John Morales. Si, senor. Sarah Tafoya. Hey, it's my mom. Mama. And Glenn Leverins. This is Morning Air on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. It's Friday, February 2nd, 2024. Good morning and welcome back to another edition of Morning Air on the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord. Happy first Friday. I'm John Morales, along with Glenn Leverance and studio producer Sarah Tafoya. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be with you here early this morning on Relevant Radio and the new Relevant Radio app. Now, today, the Catholic Church is celebrating the presentation of the Lord. This ancient feast goes back to the early church, and it's also known as Candlemas, fulfilling numerous Old Testament prophecies. By the offerings of the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Joseph, uh, the prophecy of Simeon and the life of, of Christ begins to point towards his resurrection. A resident Catholic apologist, William Albrecht, will have much more on the presentation of the Lord, also known as the purification of Mary, coming up a little bit later this half hour. Now, as we do every Friday, we always remember the sacred heart of Jesus as well as the passion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ on this first Friday. Today, as Glenn just mentioned, it's also Groundhog Day. Will Puxatani Phil see his shadow uh, and uh, what will be his uh, prediction in early spring? or six more weeks of winter. Stay tuned. We will find out uh, shortly here. We will chat about it. I want to bring in uh, Glenn and Sarah. Hey, Glenn, what are a few of the uh, big stories making headlines here on this Friday morning? Well, it's in the Middle East. The administration says they've decided what they'll do to retaliate for those uh, drone strikes on Americans that uh, killed three last weekend. Meanwhile, the Biden administration uh, looking for ways to support Palestinians. Uh, talking about possibly imposing sanctions against Israeli settlers in the West Bank. The president uh, signed a new executive order that will implement new measures to address actions that undermine peace, security, and stability in the West Bank. That's National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. That executive order would allow for financial sanctions and visa bans against four individuals involved in attacking and displacing Palestinian civilians. There's also talk, John, of recognizing Palestine as uh, an independent state and this is the administration scrambles furiously to kind of, you know, thread that needle here in an election year. It sounds like uh, the U.S. And, and Israel are not on the same page when it comes to the two-state solution, Glenn. No, that's uh, exactly right at this point. Uh, Israel uh, vowing to, you know, press on to eliminate Hamas and uh, the U.S. Uh, looking to not... Uh, you know, cause additional bloodshed in the region and also to not alienate Muslim voters. Um, there's a report that came out uh, that the U.S. is preparing to carry out a series of strikes in Iraq and Syria in response to the attack in Jordan that killed the three U.S. Uh, service members. Uh, what do we know? Well, supposedly they've decided uh, it's kind of interesting in a time of war or sort of war that you'd announce ahead of time what you'll be doing. I think that's uh, the announcement itself meant to uh, be a bit of a deterrent. And uh, we still are expecting some action soon. And, of course, uh, this comes in the context of uh, over 165 different attacks uh, on uh, U.S. Uh, military uh, bases and servicemen uh, as, as since October. So, uh, obviously, it's, uh, it's still a pretty uh, a dangerous situation uh, for uh, American servicemen in the Middle East. Yeah, it really is. I know. Just big... Over 500 uh, reserves from Minnesota took off yesterday for that region. And so uh, a lot of folks kind of 
you know, uh, keeping their fingers crossed and praying, of course, even more than that. Well, Glenn, uh, on a much uh, happier note, <laughs> today uh, is Groundhog Day once again. And so the big question is, uh, will Puxatani Phil uh, see his shadow? Uh, we sh- we're supposed to know uh, here shortly within uh, about a half an hour or so. That's right. If he sees his shadow, uh, that means six more weeks of winter, because that means that the skies are clear and presumably a little cooler than if it's cloudy and he doesn't see his shadow, then it'll be an early spring. I know in Minnesota, we've always thought six weeks would be an early spring, and we've had quite the respite the last couple of weeks with temps in the 40s. It's been highly, highly unusual here, but uh, we'll see what the rodent has to say in about 20 minutes. Uh, it's always uh, a lot of fun uh, to see what uh, little Puxatani Phil uh, has to say. Uh, this is uh, the 138th year uh, that Phil has predicted the weather. So he's got uh, quite a long uh, a tradition of doing this. And, uh, you know, I, w- I was looking into this a little bit, and uh, I-, I noticed that over the last 10 years, uh, he's actually uh, uh, seen his shadow uh, seven of the last 10 years, uh, So for the la- and including th- uh, the last three years in a row. Hmm, odds are that could be. I saw one, one prediction that the skies are kind of cloudy there today. So we'll... We'll see just after uh, after sunrise there, but uh, looks from all all uh, images like they're having quite a party nonetheless. Yeah, oh. I, I think that's an understatement. They're like having almost a rave. I'm waiting for someone to jump off the stage and be carried through the the crowd with someone in their hands. These guys up here at the at the front of the stage, they've got their little top hats and their suits, and and they're really revving everyone up. There's a lot of jumping and. It's very joyful, and you think, man, you're going to scare this groundhog. Chill out. I know they're very excited, but, I mean, he might just run away. He might not even be worried about his shadow with all the excitement. So I'm sure that uh, there'll be a lot more fun before they give the announcement because they're having way too much fun today on Groundhog Day. They really are. It looks like a big pep rally. And, uh, yeah, I I love the the traditional uh, tuxedo and uh, top hat look. Uh, It's it's quite impressive. You know, going back to 1886 where this tradition uh, began – Phil has been uh, correct 39% of the time. 108 winners, only 20 springs. Well, there you go. Hey, well. How do you like that? (laughs) Almost a track record we could be happy with. Yeah, you You know. know, Phil is not the the only one, too. There's uh, also Staten Island Chuck where they they do this as well. And sometimes it can be eventful. Then-Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York uh, dropped Staten Island Chuck, and he died. And so, uh, you know, you got to be careful when you're doing these things. Well, you got to be careful you don't get bit by any of these guys. You know, they are wild <laughs> animals think, after all. Think. If they don't like the way you're handling them, uh, it, it might not end well. So give them a little treat, too, before he goes out. And I understand that people actually, you know, love uh, Phil so much that uh, after all the hoopla and the ceremony and the prediction, uh, people can come and take pictures with him. He he's actually uh, hangs on for a while uh, in his little box so you can come and take a picture. I, I wonder if he has, uh, hey, uh, no flash photography sign right next to you. you know sometimes they have that wherever you go in different places no flash photography please so what they have some requirements before you get to take a picture with little phil though the other thing that i discovered is that um phil obviously doesn't speak english he speaks uh, uh groundhog ease so uh, th- that means that sometimes his predictions are misunderstood oh, that that could be it well hopefully the guy carrying him uh, knows how to speak groundhog ease so that's not a problem but we'll find out next hour so stay tuned i know that you are on groundhog duty keeping an eye on it i am and we will keep you updated as soon as we can uh lots of fun thanks sarah and glenn first things first as uh, we always do we start every morning in prayer 
always giving thanks to our Lord for all the many blessings through the intercession of the Mother of God, our Blessed Mother Mary, as we continue to pray for peace in the world, especially in the Middle East and in Ukraine, peace in our nation, peace in our church, and in our families. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, patroness of the unborn and of relevant radio, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of relevant radio, pray for us. St. Joseph, patron of the Universal Church, pray for us. And we invoke the Holy Spirit every morning when we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our power scripture from the Playbook of Life is from James 1.12. The Apostle St. James writes, Blessed is the man who endures trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. As Catholics, we need to understand the redemptive value of trials and suffering. Many of us have not been taught what suffering is or how to bear it. The Lord gives us trials to test our faith. He always gives us the grace to bear our sufferings. All we have to do is ask Him, and we can unite our small crosses to the big cross of Christ on Calvary. And we always pray with great confidence from the chaplet of divine mercy, Jesus, I trust in you. Quick reminder that Lent is right around the corner with Ash Wednesday, only uh, 12 days away. Make your Lenten journey with your parish this year with Father Rocky's Lenten Lessons on the Mass, sponsored in part by the National Center for Padre Pio. These free daily videos are bite-sized explorations of prayers and postures that will transform your perspective on the Mass and re-energize your parish community. So pray fast and serve these 40 days with 40 lessons with Father Rocky's weekly Eucharistic encounters, and you can sign up and share it with your family at relevantradio.com slash Lent. That's relevantradio.com slash Lent. Now, as you know, February uh, is here. Uh, Have you gone off track with your New Year's resolutions? Uh, Many of us have uh, by uh, this time. Uh, According to the U.S. News and World Report, 80% of the folks who make New Year's resolutions have failed to keep them within uh, six weeks. But our first guest is here to share a solution, a Trinitarian solution that prevents us from getting off track. Joining us live uh, from uh, New York City is Father. Bob Pagliari to discuss uh, Valentine resolutions for 2024. Father Bob is a redemptorist priest stationed in New York City, uh, teaches theology and communication courses at St. John's University in Queens, and writes a monthly column for the Archdiocese of New York, as well as a bi-monthly column for the Ligorian Magazine. He, of course, is a regular guest here on Morning Air. Good morning, Father Bob. Happy Feast of the Presentation of the Lord. Thanks so much uh, for joining us once again. Always a joy to be with you. Uh, We always get together on First Fridays. Good morning, John. And the same to you and to Glenn and and to Sarah and to listeners. Uh, God bless you all, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's it's an interesting statistic. Isn't it from the U.S. News and World Report? 80%, 8 out of 10 people don't make it. To, uh, to Valentine's Day, I can say that. 
uh, with their New Year's resolution. So you kind of get depressed and you can say, you know, I'm incapable, I'm ashamed, and and then the rest of the year is kind of, uh, you know, a pitfall after that. But I don't think that it has to be that way, John. I, I think that we can make Valentine's Day kind of a new start for uh, the New Year's resolution for the rest of the year. But we have to go about it with these three helpers that I'm suggesting. And I think that they work. And the reason I say that, I'm going to try and supplement what I'm saying by something factual in history. My understanding is that for the longest time, Russia would not allow anyone in in their country who was speaking about God because they were communists and they didn't want God uh, on the top tier of anything. So uh, until the alcohol problem, alcoholism became such a problem in that country that they allowed Alcoholics Anonymous to come in. And as you know, in the the 12 steps uh, of AA, for those of us who don't know that, uh, the word God, G-O-D, the word God appears in four of the 12 steps. And Russia welcomed it with open arms because it works. Okay. So don't they typically refer to it as a a higher power as well? They, well, it says a God or what you consider a higher power. That's true. But the actual word God, G-O-D is used in, in the 12 steps. G-O-D, it's right there. So you can't deny that, you know, whatever you conceive of as God or whatever you, you know, higher power that you think is God or you, you, you associate with God, but they you actually use the word. And that amazes me that a country that is so against God in this communism would say, well, yeah, but this program works, so we're going to let God in. Okay. I mean, this is, this is phenomenal, right? And and this is obviously something that uh, you uh, did a little research in and actually looked into uh, the, the the history of uh, how um, AA Alcoholics Anonymous uh, was founded. I did, and uh, and again, this came as news to me as well. This is back to, in 1935 when it was founded by Bill W. and Robert S. Of course, everybody in AA is anonymous. Okay. Uh, but it's it's a very a very simple kind kind of a solution in in one way, uh, you know it's a dependency on God, twelve step program, peer based, mutual help, uh, absolutely infused with spirituality, and based on, primarily on abstinence. Okay, just no more alcohol. Period. Not not even one sip. And I, I think this this kind of resolution. Maybe if we look at into the habit of it, and that's another aspect of this, John. Habits are don't, don't come automatically. We build them up step by step by step, gradually. And the same way of getting rid of them, we have to go step by step by step to get rid of bad habits. I'm talking here about sin, okay? I, I think it's okay for us to mention sin. Okay? I hope it's okay for us to mention sin. Absolutely. Here on, on Morning Air and on Relevant Radio, of course. Well, we don't hear this enough today. We, we, we really don't. What we're hearing is the emphasis on, oh, my identity, and I am whoever I decide I am, right? And my freedom. Okay. I rarely and never, ever do we hear about humility, okay? Humble. Oh, my goodness. You've got to be kidding me. I have to be proud of this and proud of that as if it's all my own doing. So, again, God goes out the window whenever we talk about our own will we're not going to be humble. We're going to be proud. 
I'm going to have my own identity. I'm going to decide what I am and who I am and how other people are going to talk to me or, or what I'm going to be. You know, no, it, it doesn't work that way. We have to actually be humble. And it's t- 12 steps is very, very humbling if you look at the 12 steps of AA. But any uh, resolution that we have, if we're humble enough to say, thy will, not my will be done. You know, who said that? Who's the very first, the very first fiat, let it be, was God himself. God, everybody automatically thinks of Mary when she, and, and that was true at the Annunciation with Gabriel. It's just, you know, fiat, let it be done to me according to where. That was the second one in history, in the biblical history. The first one was God himself who said, let there be light, let it be. And there was light. When Mary said, let it be, the light became flesh. The word of God became flesh. And then, of course, the third person was Christ himself in the agony in the garden. And he said, you know, let this cross pass from me, but let it be according to thy word. Thy will, not mine. I want to open up our phone lines here in the uh, limited time that we have uh, with you, uh, Father. I want to bring in listeners here early this morning. Uh, if you've been able to keep your New Year's resolutions, or do you rely on uh, the Lord uh, for His grace and strength, or, or have you tried to do it on your own willpower? Uh, if you have any thoughts of what we're chatting about, would love to hear from you. We're taking your calls for Father Bob Pagliari at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Four nine, um, Father. Um, there was a fellow who wrote uh, uh, a book on the power of habit, and uh, it, it is quite a reminder uh, that uh, willpower is just not enough uh, when we're when we're trying to overcome uh, something like uh, alcoholism, as, as an example. Absolutely, the power of habit. The author is Charles Duhigg, and he that's a D U H I G G. Very wonderful book. And again, we go back to this idea that it's gradual. A habit is gradual. You have to be persevere. You have to persevere. You have to stick with it. Okay. It's going to be hard at times, but so is being good hard at times. So is practicing uh, baseball or any other sport. It's hard at times. And you're going to, you know, strike out a couple of times or more than a couple of times before you get good at something. Uh, Father, I, I heard I heard uh, w- once that habits are like threads. They start out as a little mm-hmm. thread, but if you do it over and over, they become like thick cables that are almost unbreakable. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Bound together in a, as a cord almost, and then as a rope, and you can hardly ever break that. It's just wonderful uh, analogy, and that's how habits are, right? But habits are are something that we have to stick with. And that, again, is not popular. It really is not. It's not even popular to suffer. Oh, my goodness, I'm suffering. I better go to the doctor. I better take an aspirin. I better, you know, I better complain. I better weep. Whatever it is. Come on. Okay? Sometimes uh, uh, the strength that we need to be good as opposed to be bad, which is very, very easy. I don't have to tell any of the parents out there, and correct me if I'm wrong, parents, you know, it's easier to discipline a child than it is to raise it. Not that discipline is, is uh, and by, by discipline, I mean, you know, physical uh, harm. You, you can't do that. It, you, it's easier to steal than it is to work for something and buy it. Father, what, really what we're talking about here, and, and you alluded to it, is a, a Trinitarian solution, relying on uh, mm-hmm. the Lord, uh, God Almighty, uh, uh, the Holy Trinity, uh, to give us uh, the strength to deal with whatever comes our way. 
And I think it's, it's the trinity of God and neighbor and humility. Those three things, particularly that trinity, is the thing that's going to help us get to the, uh, to the resolutions that we want and to keep them to the end of the year. As always, I know you have uh, some holy homework for us here in this uh, month of February. Well, I think we can make a poster, put the word God right in the middle of it, okay, right in the middle of it, and our resolutions around it, and neighbor, and humility, and then hang this poster low in the, the entrance that we use most often to come in and out of the house. Low enough so that we have to bow our heads to get under it. And that's going to remind us as we pass under this poster to be humble. And that is going to be, that's going to be the virtue that's going to help us keep our resolutions to God, to, to, uh, you know, to be good and faithful and virtuous instead of uh, sinful. Well, ha- happy uh, uh, Feast of the Presentation and Groundhog Day to you, uh, uh, Father Bob. Thank you. God bless everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. Father Bob Pegliari, a columnist for the Archdiocese of New York, as well as a regular contributor to Morning Air. We need to take a short break. When we come back, our resident Catholic apologist, William Albrecht, will join us to talk about today's feast, the presentation of the Lord, also known as the purification of Mary uh, from Scripture and from tradition. So we're going to have a lot more as uh, Morning Air rolls on on this first Friday here on Relevant Radio and the new Relevant Radio app. Time. A thousand people freezing their butts off waiting to worship a rat. And we have some breaking news for you here this morning. As uh, Puxatani Phil did not see his shadow, which means an early spring is uh, coming. Uh, so we'll chat much more about uh, little Phil coming up at the top of the hour. Welcome back to Morning Air on this feast of the presentation of the Lord. I'm John Morales, along with Glenn and producer Sarah. Thanks so much uh, for tuning in on this first Friday morning here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. As always, you can send us an email directly. It's Morning Air at relevantradio.com and hey jot down our number uh, save it into your phone if you want to be part of the program the number is 888-914-9149 888-914-9149 now uh, today as we've been talking about the Catholic Church uh, is celebrating the feast of the presentation of the Lord which occurs 40 days after the birth of Jesus and is also known as the purification of Mary and candle mass sadly it's also uh, the traditional end of the Christmas season season uh, that is still celebrated in the traditional Latin mass community and even in Rome uh, where they have uh, big celebrations that where they finally take down uh, all uh, the Christmas stuff, the nativity scenes uh, from all of the churches. In fact, we're taking everything down here uh, at Relevant Radio on this day. Joining us live is a Morning Air contributor and our resident Catholic apologist, William Albrecht, uh, to talk about uh, this uh, feast day and the purification of Mary. Will 
William is an international speaker and debater. He's participated in well over 70 live and moderated debates. He runs a website called patristicpillars.com dedicated to the early church fathers and is the author of several books, including The Definitive Guide to Solving Biblical Questions About Mary, Mary Among the Evangelists. Good morning, Brother William. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy Feast of the Presentation of the Lord. It's uh, great to be with you. And uh, hey, how about uh, that Puxatani Phil? <laughs> happy Feast, brother. It is a really, really thrilling to be with you, and I'm happy to be with you on a really important day, a little bit bittersweet, because just like you, I am putting the decorations away today, but it it truly has been a beautiful, beautiful season, hasn't it, brother? Uh, absolutely. Uh, personally, we we almost made it to this day. We took them down uh, last weekend, uh, so we we had them for uh, longer than most folks. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, today's uh, feast day, uh, the the presentation of the Lord and the, the purification of Holy Mary. Why is this so important uh, for Catholics? It truly is incredibly important, brother, because you have here the direct reference to the the gospel of St. Luke. And in the gospel of Luke chapter 2, beginning right there around verse 22, you've got the text showing us Christ being presented in the temple. And of course, you have the purification text as we read when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. So our Lord is presented as the humble Messiah truly born of the Virgin, as the Bible prophesied in Isaiah 7. And then we read about the purification. Now, why is that occurring? Well, we know very well they were keeping the Jewish holy family, were keeping with the ritual Jewish tradition, and we also see that they offer up the humble, the humble familial offering to show us that the holy family truly were holy, keeping in law with the law of the Lord, and they were truly obedient, and they were humble. And uh, obviously, as Scripture has a lot to say uh, about uh, the purification of, of Jesus and Mary. Yeah, that is a very good point there, because as you know very well, brother, I'm mentioning that, the text is in the plural. In verse 22, it says, when the time came for their purification. So what we're reading here is a purification event. And, you know, sometimes we hear the term purify. And we tend to think, okay, well, is there a cleansing of a kind of impurity or is there any kind of sin attached to it? Because our Western minds hear the word purifying. We tend to think that, but really all that is occurring in Luke 2 is a ritual symbolism because the Holy Family were good, abiding Jews. And hey, we know our Lord had no sin at all. And we know the Holy Mother Mary was sinless as well. So we know that neither of these purifications are for sin. Rather, it's a ritual symbolism the Holy Family were doing because they were good and they were holy Jews. And well, the ritual symbolism was because our Lord was just recently born and it was symbolic and a tradition for the mother and the family to go and present the child to the Lord in the temple, keeping in tune with the laws of the Old Testament. And speaking of those laws as laid out in Leviticus 12, uh, our Blessed Mother was not under the strict law of uh, impurity laid out in Leviticus. Brother, you bring up a great point there. And no, she was not. But very often at times, our evangelical friends, they tend to get a little confused and they'll say, well, look, Catholics, uh, Leviticus 12 is talking about a woman. Uh, You know, she's impure there. You know, she needs to be 
purified. So how is Mary an exception if it's literally referring to the purification of Leviticus 12? And we have to remind them, well, what is Leviticus 12 talking about? And when we read Leviticus 12, it tells us literally, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, if a woman has received seed and born a male child, she shall be unclean seven days. And as is customary, impurity, she shall be unclean. But here's the key word, as you know very well, brother, because here at Relevant Radio, you guys live reading the Bible and you are steeped in the tradition of the church. Well, what does the Bible talk about? It talks about a woman being ritually impure that has received seed. Well, this is a natural union between a male and a female in the Bible, as Isaiah 7 is clear, as Luke 1 is clear. Holy Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Ghost. She did not receive male seed. She does not fall under the strict law of Leviticus 12. Thus, this shows us, doesn't it, brother, that they are merely serving in this ritual because they were a good and holy Jewish family. Thanks uh, for laying it out uh, for us. I want to open up our phone lines. Uh, If you have a question or comment about the scriptural basis for the purification of Mary or what the tradition of the church teaches, we would love to to hear from you. We're taking your calls for Catholic apologist William Albrecht at 888-914-9149. We only have them for just a few more uh, minutes, Uh, 888-914-9149. In fact, uh, Mary Ann is up early this morning joining us uh, from Rhode Island, Good Good morning, Marianne. You are on uh, with William Albrecht. Oh, good morning. Thank you so much for being there today. This question has been on my mind a while. I don't get the sequence of events in the infancy narratives. I understand some are in Luke and one is in Matthew, but between the, uh, going off to Egypt and the presentation, presentation of Jesus and Mary, I, I'm just confused about what happened first, second, third, the thought of the Holy Innocence. Can you help me with that? Okay, I'm going to try and unpack and understand your question as best as I can. So just so you can know, you've got certain events that are examined in the Gospel of St. Matthew, which don't get attention in the Gospel of Luke, and vice versa. So the one thing that I would recommend to you is noting that each Gospel writer does focus on certain things from their point of view. For instance, You may be wondering, okay, well, why does this occur in the Gospel of St. Matthew? And yet you don't have the presentation or the purification event in the Gospel of St. Matthew, but you've got it in St. Luke. Well, let me tell you particularly why. Luke is focusing on certain things that were pretty much recounted to him by Mary. Early church tradition tells us he went around interviewing people like a good historian. And Mary recounted certain events to him, which which is why you have particular words of Mary that are preserved in the Gospel of St. Luke. So you have certain things preserved from the certain perspective of the biblical author. But when you lay them out very clearly, they all make sense. Nothing contradicts one another. And indeed, the purification of the Lord, it would have occurred, even if it isn't laid out in the Gospel of St. Matthew, because they were a good Jewish family, and they were required under the law to have occurred in this event, to have presented the Lord. So you can be sure that even though if one gospel account doesn't occur, doesn't have it, it for sure did occur, and there is no contradiction there. 
I hope uh, that helps, um, Marianne. Thanks so much uh, for for the call, um, Brother William. Can you talk a little bit about the, the early church fathers and uh, the, their uh, perspective on uh, the purification uh, in in the life of our Blessed Mother Mary? Absolutely, brother. What a great question. At times, people wonder. They this is a great question. They'll encounter early fathers that talk about Mary being pre-purified, and they may wonder, okay, well. What does that mean? The great Gregory of Nazianzus in Oration 38 talks about the virgin who first in body and soul was pre-purified by the Holy Ghost. And then people may wonder and say, well, is that a purification for sin? But then in the very same oration, he'll talk about our Lord being purified. Indeed, none of the early fathers used purification in the sense of purifying from a moral fault or a sin. They never use it that way. Rather, they're using it in the sense of saying, the Virgin Mary, she purified childbirthing. Our Lord, he purified the baptismal waters. These are symbolic kinds of purifications. Indeed, we know according to the Bible and according to early tradition, Mary never had any sin. Thus, it's good to understand, okay, well, why did the purification ritual occur? We realize biblically they were a good Jewish family. And purification, hey, it doesn't always mean a purifying, a cleansing from sin. That's an important thing to remember because that's the way the Bible and the early church fathers clearly taught it, brother. And St. Ephraim the Syrian, writing around 350 AD, he, he used another word uh, instead of purified to refer to the purification of our Blessed Mother Mary. Uh, can you uh, explain that? Yeah, what a beautiful question. The great Ephraim talks about Mary's mind being polished, purified. And we may stop and wonder, well, what does this mean? Well, this is exactly what Catholic theology teaches, even the Holy Mary. From the very instance of her creation was full of grace. She receives an abundance of graces and growth in grace throughout her life. Perhaps the grace she needed as an infant was perfect at that moment, but the grace she would need before she became the mother of God to prepare her to be our Theotokos, our holy mother of God, would increase. Thus, Ephraim and the fathers teach that Mary would be prepared and prepared each walk of her life to be prepared to be the mother of God. And then what is the beautiful pinnacle? Biblically, brother, we know the pinnacle of it is in Revelation 12, where Mary is now bodily crowned in heavenly glory with our Lord, bodily assumed into heaven. Isn't it wonderful the way we see this beautiful walk of life of Holy Mary, truly full of grace throughout every instance of her life? Now, you mentioned a couple of the church fathers. There's yet even more church fathers throughout the centuries that uh, had a, a perspective on the purification of our Blessed Mother. Indeed. You think of a figure, and this is a, a titan of a father, called Sophronius of Jerusalem. When talking about Mary, he says, nobody is as blessed as you. Nobody has sanctified as you. Nobody has magnified. Nobody has pre-purified. Nobody is beaming or as brilliant as you. And then you may wonder, okay, well, what does he mean by purified? And then he tells you, the, the Holy Ghost comes upon you. The already stainless woman It is going to make you even more pure. Now, this is the teaching of the church. Mary has been full of grace and all holy through every walk and instance of her holy life. 
And uh, more recently, uh, our uh, beloved uh, late Holy Father, Pope uh, Benedict XVI, also uh, spoke about uh, our Blessed Mother uh, as uh, the Immaculate Conception and, and her purification. He sure did. Pope Emeritus Benedict says, Mary, who gave the human nature of Christ, is true mother of God, and in view of her highest mission, was pre-purified as of a distant prelude of the Immaculate Conception. Isn't that amazing, brother? That is a, a beautiful, beautiful uh, thought uh, by our Holy Father. So when you look at uh, uh, the writings of the fathers throughout history, you look at the scriptural basis, and more recently, uh, um, Pope uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, uh, there is a compendium of uh, of yes. information uh, to uh, acknowledge the teaching that we have uh, about the purification of our Blessed Mother, uh, William. As always, uh, thanks as, as so much for being with us. Uh, where can our listeners? find out more um, from your website. Yes, they can find out much more at www.patristicpillars.com. They can find out everything I'm working on, new books, new projects, new debates. And I've got to say, brother, it was thrilling to be with you today. Happy feast day, brother. And it was a blast. I look forward to being back with you. Always a joy to be with you. Uh, Catholic apologist William Albrecht, the author of A Complete History of the Biblical Canon in the Christian East and Latin West. We need to take a short break when we come back. Bishop Daniel Muggenberg will look ahead to this Sunday's gospel with our very own Glenn Leveran. So uh, stay with us. There's much more to come on this first Friday edition of Morning Air here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. What day is this? Groundhog Day. I thought it was yesterday. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and welcome back to Morning Air on another Friday dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. I'm John Morales. It's good to be with you. And now it's time to look ahead to this Sunday's Gospel. Always keep in mind that the Word of God in the Gospels, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, is powerful. When the Gospel, the Book Eternal, is proclaimed, Christ is passing by. Jesus is speaking to you. So listen carefully, folks, as Bishop Daniel Muggenberg, Bishop of Reno, Nevada, shares his weekly reflection on this Sunday's Gospel with our very own Glenn Leverance. A Gospel reading for this fifth Sunday at Ordinary Time comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. On leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. They immediately told him about her. He approached, grasped her hand, and helped her up. Then the fever left her, and she waited on them. When it was evening after sunsets, they brought to him all who were ill or possessed by demons. The whole town was gathered at the door. He cured many who were sick with various diseases, and he drove out many demons, not permitting them to speak because they knew him. Rising very early before dawn, he left and went off to a deserted place where he prayed. Simon and those who were with him pursued him, and on finding him said, Everyone is looking for you. He told them, Let us go on to the nearby villages, that I may preach there also. For this purpose I have come. So he went into their synagogues, preaching and driving out demons throughout the whole of Galilee. Time now for a deeper look at that gospel reading for the fifth Sunday in Ordinary Time from Mark 1, verses 29 through 39. We learn about the healing of Peter's mother-in-law today. Joining us for a closer look, it's Bishop Daniel Muggenberg from the Diocese of Reno, Nevada. Bishop Muggenberg, always great to have you along. And great to be here, Glenn. Well, here is one great healing story, and it has great implication for how we handle should we receive a healing. What do we do with that good news? 
This is very true. And, you know, Jesus begins his ministry um, by visiting the home of his friends. And the first thing they do is present a need in terms of Simon Peter's mother-in-law being sick with that fever. Um, our Lord's action isn't, isn't just an action of compassion. But this gospel passage is trying to teach us how we should respond to Jesus's grace in our lives. Um, Because in one way or another, the Lord has healed each of us, whether it's from the wounds of sin or whether it's from physical threats as well. In an interesting way in that uh, our Lord healed Peter's mother-in-law too, uh, involved along with his word, which was enough. But uh, the physical touch too would have been, wow, that's kind of out there for how men and women interacted in that day. Very true. So Jesus is going out of his way to show us that he's breaking some of the social conventions of his time, you know, to interact with Simon Peter's mother-in-law or, um, you know, for a man and a woman like that to interact and not be immediate family members would have would have been something that would have been frowned upon. Um, but Jesus touches her. Nonetheless, he, re- he approaches her. He touches her. He does all those things to show that he will not be prevented in showing his mercy based upon the social conventions or expectations of his time, but that Jesus is going to act in very unconventional ways in order to bring God's mercy to those who need it. And that's a powerful message for us because sometimes, you know, we can actually be paralyzed by social expectations, and sometimes we can be afraid to rock the boat in terms of, you know, whatever norms um, may may exist in our, our offices or societies. But sometimes we have to take that risk like Jesus does, to err on the side of mercy in order, so that other people can know God's love for them. Now, he was kind of breaking a convention of the day, but can it go as far as really a, a lesson as there are others almost more in the, the spirit of the law than the letter of the law, if a higher purpose can be served? Yeah, you know, we are we are always following the law of love. And the law of love does not dispense us from, you know, the requirements of justice and those other things. But we need to be very careful in discerning, you know, what are authentic um, regulations of justice and what are also um, social conventions that that become relative in the face of these demands of love. And that's an ongoing, you know, difficult question to answer, but, but it's an important one. And Jesus is showing us at this time that helping this woman who is suffering uh, is more important than um, observing all of the social restrictions and expectations. And Bishop Muggenberg, important in this uh, case of healing too, the person being healed didn't just say thanks or even not and, and run off and rejoice, but turned right around to serve. That's true. And this is one of the beautiful parts of this passage is that is that Simon Peter's mother-in-law receives this gift of healing and this gift of restored life, and she immediately uses it to serve Jesus and presumably to serve um, Simon and Andrew as well. And, uh, and so what she's demonstrating for us is she is demonstrating someone who has now shared in the risen life of Jesus because Jesus raised her up. He helped her up. He raised her up. And that's the verb of the resurrection. So now that she shares in the risen life of our Lord, she immediately manifests um, that active participation in the body of Christ by 
serving those around her. And that's important for us because oftentimes when we receive God's grace in our lives, like you say, we can maybe say thank you, but then we can take that newfound, restored life and we can go use it for our own purposes rather than using it to serve Christ and the needs of the church. So Simon Peter's mother-in-law is really a, a great example of how to respond to God's grace in a faithful um, way as good stewards and good disciples. After the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, word must have spread because that evening uh, the whole town came to the house and uh, our Lord went about uh, healing a great crowd, but their response was different. Oh, their response was very different. And these two different responses, the response of Simon Peter's mother-in-law and the response of the crowds, is intentionally put next to each other so that we will see the contrast. We'll see how, you know, um, the crowds come to Jesus, and they receive exactly the same grace that Simon Peter's mother-in-law received. They received healing. You know, um, those who were possessed were delivered from their possession. Um, They received tremendous graces, but were never told that they responded to the Lord um, by placing, you know, um, the gift of their newly restored life in service of the gospel and in service of others. Rather, the implication is that they actually went back home and um, they came back to Jesus the next day looking for him, presumably seeking more graces, but not with a desire to put their lives in service for him. And that's the contrast between uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law who represents such a good, faithful, and generous response, and the crowds, who represent a very self-interested desire. You know, they're happy to come to Jesus in their moment of need, but they're not going to come to the Lord offering uh, the gift of their lives. Um, And so Jesus, seeing that response, gets up the next day and says, it's time to go to the other towns, because I need to preach there also. And that really should speak to us, because oftentimes we only go to the Lord in prayer when we need something. Um, But part of our prayer should really be seeking guidance in terms of how we can serve God, how we can serve our neighbor, and how we can use these blessings that God has given us to um, advance the mission of the gospel in our world today. To approach our Lord uh, with thankfulness even before we ask, and then again, asking not just purely for our own benefit, that, but Lord, if I was healed of this, that, whatever, I could do many good things. And not just kind of bargaining with them either, but having that heart of, hey, you know, you know, Lord, I want to serve you and help your cause. If you can help me, that will, that will work well. But to wrap it up with thanks as well, as opposed to just rejoicing that uh, we had good fortune. Very true. Active gratitude. Act of gratitude and, uh, and also having God's will in mind as we pray. Well, as we thank you for this great look today, if you'd be so kind as to wrap us up this week with your blessing. The Lord be with you. And may the blessing of Almighty God, who shares blessings for each of us, also instill within us that desire to serve the Lord with the blessings we have received. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And thank you, Bishop Muggenberg. And now it's time for another episode of Glenn Story Corner. Our story today is called A Graduate Lesson. The first day of school, our professor introduced himself and challenged us to get to know someone we didn't already know. I stood up to look around when a gentle hand touched my shoulder. I turned around to find a wrinkled little old lady beaming up at me with a smile that lit up her entire being. She said, hi, handsome. 
My name's Rose. I'm 87 years old. Can I give you a hug? I laughed and enthusiastically responded, of course you may. She gave me a giant squeeze. Why are you in college at such a young, innocent age, I asked. She jokingly replied, I'm here to meet a rich husband, get married, have a couple kids, and then retire and travel. I was seriously asked, I was curious what may have motivated her to be taking on this challenge at her age. Always dreamed of having a college education, and now I'm getting one, she said. After class, we walked to the student union, shared a chocolate milkshake, and became instant friends. Every day for the next three months, we'd leave class together and talk nonstop. I was always mesmerized listening to this time machine as she shared her wisdom and experience with me. Over the course of the year, Rose became a campus icon, and she easily made friends wherever she went. She loved to dress up and reveled in the attention bestowed upon her from the other students. She was living it up. At the end of the semester, we invited Rose to speak at her football banquet, and I'll never forget what she taught us. She was introduced and stepped up to the podium. She began to deliver her prepared speech and then dropped her 3 by 5 cards on the floor. Frustrated and a little embarrassed, she leaned into the microphone and simply said, I'm sorry I'm so jittery. I gave up beer for Lent and this whiskey's killing me. I'll never get my speech back in order now, so just let me tell you what I know. We laughed and she cleared her throat and began, We do not stop playing because we're old. We grow old because we stop playing. There are only four secrets to staying young, being happy, and achieving success. You have to laugh and find humor every day. You've got to have a dream. When you lose your dreams, you die. We have so many people walking around who are dead and don't even know it. There's a huge difference between growing older and growing up. You're 19 and lie in bed for one full year and don't do one productive thing, you'll turn 20. If I'm 87 years old and stay in bed for a year and never do anything, I'll turn 88. Anybody can grow older. That doesn't take any talent or ability. The idea is to grow up. Always finding the opportunity in change. Have no regrets. The elderly usually don't have regrets for what we did, but rather for things we did not do. The only people who fear death are those with regrets. She concluded her speech by courageously singing The Rose, and challenged each of us to study the lyrics and live them out in our daily lives. At the year's end, Rose finished the college degree that she'd begun all those years ago. One week after graduation, Rose died peacefully in her sleep. Over 2,000 college students attended her funeral in tribute to the wonderful woman who taught us by example, it's never too late to be all you can possibly be. From Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of the time, as the days are evil. As always, uh, thanks so much, uh, Glenn. Uh, today is the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord, so that means that it's also Groundhog Day. So if you haven't heard, uh, we're going to fill you in on uh, what happened with the uh, 45,000 people on hand to watch Puxatani film. Did Phil uh, see his shadow? Well... We don't Hold want to give on, it away. Just stick around a we couple more minutes. We don't want to give right it away now. right don't now. Don't give it away. Don't give it away. Some of our listeners may have heard our breaking news last hour. If you haven't, we'll we'll chat about it here uh, coming up. Uh, also, uh, in this next hour, uh, Carol and Pete Tomaselli, the community coordinators of Retrovi of Chicago, they'll be with us to talk about the five D's for a healthy marriage. Plus, uh, Father Richard Rocha, the chaplain of the Kansas City Chiefs, will be with us to talk football, faith, and Super Bowl Fifty Eight between the Chiefs and the. 49ers, a rematch of Super Bowl 54. Who will come away with the Lombardi Trophy? Stay with us. There is much more to come on this first Friday in the final hour of Morning Air here on Relevant Radio and the new Relevant Radio app.